This week on Writers Inc. Um, I tried outline for my very first book and I went so completely far off the outline so quickly that I've never tried ever since. I mean to the first to the point that um, the the person who is the killer in Sharp Objects was not even in the first draft of the book. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and indie powerhouses Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the best seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's Inc. JD, how much stock do you own in Disney Corp now? <laughs> I'm ready to buy some. You know, it's like the finance guy in me was like taking off every little box. Like as we went in there, like they are so good at, at just making money. But at the same time, you know, like everything they do is like just completely dialed in. You know, like we, we stayed on property at, at one of their hotels and like, you know, that experience, you know, like everything about it was, you know, about as perfect as a hotel visit could be. You know, like, you know, simple stuff, you know, like finding outlets to plug your, your crap in, you know, like they've got them everywhere. They've got USB plugs everywhere, like things that you struggle with, you know, sometimes going to a five star hotel, they're missing things like Dis Disney's got it, got it perfect, you know, and even the transportation back and forth. And so like from that standpoint, it's it's amazing, but they are making money hand over fist. Um, and like I was just I was envious and pissed off all at the same time. <laughs> Dude, you're right, though. It's like nothing I've ever experienced when I went there in 2018. I mean, everything is locked. They make it as seamless as possible. For I know we were talking before we came on, and you were saying they've, like, switched to an app, which makes sense. But when I went in 2018, you know, they had, like, the arm, the bracelet armband things, and, like, that was your key. That was, like, how you paid. Like, even if you went and got food at, at Disney Springs, like, you paid there. That was your fast pass for your rides, how you got into the parks. Like, I don't know. It's pretty, pretty incredible I thought that how was, just seamless they I thought that was all free. Like, you just hold your band up at the vendor, and then they give you food, and it was free, right? Yeah. No, they, they, yeah. they hand That's you a, a cone of feel. ice cream that cost $42. That's what they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my buddy still messes with me because we did one of the princess breakfasts one morning where, like, all the princes come to your table, and it was an amazing experience. But, like, they just brought, like, a plate of eggs and hash browns pretty much. It was, like, $180 for me, my wife, and my daughter. My buddy David still makes fun of me about that. He's like, you see, you had any $180 scrambled eggs lately? Yeah, like, that, that part's insane. We, we ate at, um, I think it's called Ohana. It's the, the restaurant at that Polynesian um, resort. And my, my um, wife's parents came for it, too. So it was, you know, like, five or five or six of us or something. But, like, the, that bill was almost $600. You know, and like the, my mac and cheese for my daughter, which was $42 <laughs> for, for a bowl of and, JD's and it, scanning it, that bracelet. It I was, it was good, good mac and cheese. No, this was all on my wife, man. When we go to Disney, like she, she's like, I got this, I got this. Like, cause she knows I won't pay for it. We were joking around about it off, <laughs> off air. Like if, if I take the family to Disney, we'd be at motel six and we'd hit one of those, you know, those uh, seminars to get a free or get a timeshare in order to get free <laughs> Disney tickets. Like I, I'll sit through two hours of that, you know, to, to knock a $140 ticket or whatever that is off. But no, my wife is like full on loves Disney, wanted our daughter's first experience to be perfect. 
Um, so she shelled out an, an insane amount of money for this, but it, it was a, a really fun trip. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Like it's, you know, like Disney really should be in charge of like infrastructure for the country. You know, like even simple stuff as far as the way their buses run, like, you know, they're like, there, there were no real stop signs or anything like that. Not a whole lot of traffic, but like every, you know, like they all just kind of worked perfectly. Like, you know, the, our bus would be going this direction. Another one would cross behind us. You know, like they, it was just seamless. You know, it's, it's impressive, I guess. The burning yeah, question I would love for them to take over and figure out like the DMV. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Well, the burning but, question yeah, I have like is, uh, did, did you work JD? I, I kind of did. So like, it was a nightmare. And we, we talked about this, I guess, when I was on a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we had a property that we were closing on another cabin in uh, Gatlinburg. And this one like really, really came down to the wire. And it, it turned out it was because the the broker that was handling the deal didn't send a lot of our paperwork over to the underwriter. Like the underwriter sends this list of things they want to see. My wife sent it all off to the broker before we left and he never forwarded it on. Um, and the people that were selling this house were leaving for Europe like the, the next day, basically that the day after the closing was supposed to happen. And so like if the closing fell through, it wasn't going to happen at all. Like they would come back from Europe in a month and they put the house back on the market and we'd you know lose our earnest money and, and all these, these fun things. So we ended up closing on this place at four o'clock the day that the closing was supposed to happen at Disney. And they actually sent the, somebody from the title company out, you know, notary to, to sign all the paperwork there at the pool at the, the Disney resort, which was kind of neat. But I, I didn't get any sleep. I was just totally stressed. And, you know, I sat down and tried to force myself to, to work. Um, but, you know, like it's, it's tough to, to create words when you've got that kind of thing floating around in your head so like i didn't sleep that night and then finally that that happened we closed down the house and i got to relax a little bit and i had um the days that we stayed at the pool like we were on disney property and like we had a couple days that we just penciled in just to stay at the resort um those days i, I wrote so i wrote in the morning till about 11 30 or 12 and then i joined the family out there at the pool but you know my, my daughter's four like this was her first disney experience i didn't want to be the guy who said oh i'll meet you over the you know magic kingdom in three hours i got to get some words in and, and miss some of that like i wanted to see i wanted to see her face light up at each of those things so it, it was worth skipping but now now i'm like in crunch time doing double duty trying to get caught up again but but totally worth it nice nice what are you, you working on those moments your 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 little thriller book can wait <laughs> yeah the little thriller book the other weird thing that happened like i don't did i tell you guys that i had um a prk done on one of my eyes sort of like a it's, it's like lasik um but it, it doesn't heal like if you get lasik done like literally when you walk out of the office your vision is is perfect like it, it happens immediately with prk it takes about a month to six weeks before you actually see the results so i had that done about three weeks before we left um and everything was totally blurry when i left the house and then like when i got back like everything was like super sharp which was crazy weird and i just had a check yesterday and i'm at 2015 um vision which you know like that was strange like i put my glasses on to watch a movie and like, like my glasses it was like one of those things in, a, in like a superhero movie like i put them on and they actually made my vision blurry and i could take them <laughs> back off and everything was clear again um but yeah prk and i was i was talking offline with uh, joanna penn because I, I talked to my eye doctor about this but they've actually got implantable contact lenses coming out um, that can autofocus, you know, like based on technology that they're using in cell phones. Um, and like, those are about to hit the market. I didn't realize how close it was. And you have to like wirelessly charge these contacts and they're like, they're, they're implanted in your eyes. Um, you know, but like, this is literally, you know, like a couple of years away from augmented reality stuff happening too. So like this, you know, the future is, is kind of here when it comes to that and fascinating stuff. If you get a chance to research it, that's how they, I not, now I know how they got that $45 Mac and cheese past you. <laughs> they, they knew your eyes were messed up, so they could, couldn't see like, a damn thing. He thought it was four fifty, four dollars and fifty cents. How much is this? <laughs> um, Listen to those contacts. 
Yeah, what else is going on? Um, came back to a, a phone call from my, my foreign agent. My publisher in Spain wants me to come to Spain for three days for a book tour, um, which is very cool. But like, you know, COVID happened and like my passport's sitting in a, in a safe at the house and it expired like four months ago. So I got to figure out what I need to do to, to renew my passport and, and fast because they want me there in, in May. Um, so that should be kind of fun. And that's, that's the first real, you know, like I used to do that kind of thing, you know, pretty regularly before COVID hit and everything just went to zoom. Like they shut all that stuff down. Uh, but it, you know, it feels a lot like the, the world is starting to get back to normal again. So this is my first international trip to promote a book. So that should be fun. Nice. Did you see, uh, I was going to ask you, I meant to email you this the other day, but I think it's why you're still at Disney. And I don't want to bug you, but, uh, you might have been back. I don't know. But uh, did you see uh, the whole thing with Amazon ads and how you can promote your traditionally published books now? Yeah, I actually have that in my notes. And I, I saved the email and I forwarded it on to my editors. And I'm, I'm, I'm on the fence about it because, you know, like, honestly, it's something that they should be doing. Yeah, I was. Um, that's but, what I thought. You know, <laughs> yeah, say. But, but they don't, you know, and like yeah. they'll, they'll do it for a book that's, you know, about to come out or has just come out, that kind of thing. You know, we've talked about their, their little model and, and how they like to just hit big at that opening week and then they kind of let it fizzle. Um, but in my case, I've got a weird situation because my 4MK series, like the first two books are traditionally published and I have all the rights on the, the third one. Um, so me pushing that first book is, you know, similar to an indie author pushing their first book and yeah. series and, you know, it all, it all trickles down. Um, but I, I'm at a weird place with that because I, those were originally published by, um, uh, HMH, um, and they got bought by Harper Collins. So now Harper Collins has the 4MK trilogy. Um, HMH had a, a very good relationship with Amazon and they kept a lot of titles in Kindle Unlimited where Harper Collins didn't, you know, a lot of the traditional publishers don't like to use Kindle Unlimited. Um, so I'm going back and forth with my editor trying to keep those first two books in KU um, while HarperCollins is saying, well, we don't do KU. <laughs> you know, so I want to make all, make sure all those things line up. And if they do that, I've got no problem throwing some dollars at you know the, the first book in the series and, and running some Amazon ads to see if it, it floats. Um, I'm honestly glad that they did it because I mean, years back, like when my the second and third books were coming out in that series, like I wanted to do that and I couldn't because Amazon didn't allow it. So at least now we have that option. Yeah, it's nice to have that option, but like you said, it shouldn't be that way. <laughs> no, no, it shouldn't be. So. What's going on with you guys? What are you working on? Uh, I uh, am a turn. Hopefully, maybe later today or tomorrow, I'm finally gonna get my book turned into my editor, which I'm pretty stoked about. So um, that'll give me a, a few days to to work on some other projects and stuff. There's some other things that I got on my plate that I need to get to. Um, and uh, also, I just got, uh, I was pretty excited about this. I just got uh, an email today about the release date for um, the uh, the Final Awakening series that Jay and I wrote. Um, we released those audiobooks. We signed a deal with Tantor for those. Um, and I got them ag to agree to do a box set of all three books. And so I got the email a little bit ago that that's coming. I've signed the contract and everything, but it's coming out April 26th. So there's a release date and stuff, and you know, hopefully they're going to show me the cover and stuff soon because I'm kind of working with them on that a little bit. And um, but but I've I haven't done any audiobook box sets yet, um, but I have friends who are just like making a killing with them. So and that's my long term goal of my Dead South series is to get all those audiobooks done and then make one big audiobook and uh, and sell that. So I'll be kind of stoked to see where uh, how this goes with this trilogy. So. I didn't even know that was a thing, audiobook box sets, but I can see that working. You know, like I, I tend, if I find a series I like, just like with the books, I try to buy them all and, and burn through them. So it'd be nice to get them all in one shot. Yeah, because if you're, you think about it, if you're an Audible subscriber and you get a fourteen nine nine credit a month, 
and you can buy one book that's eight hours or you can buy an entire series that's a 60 or 70 hour book like yeah i have i mean i I have friends who listen to this show who are making like tens of thousands of dollars just on their audiobooks because of box sets well like a, a month a lot of people look at that yeah. that you know, hour count on the book, you know, like if you, cause you get one credit through Audible. So, like, are you going to blow it on a book that's an eight hour listen or one that's 23 hours? And Absolutely. You know, most most people will will go that route. And I, I used to be one of them. I, if I saw a book that was over 30 hours, I was all over it. You know, if I saw one that was four hours, I usually passed. So especially if it's multiple books and you're going to get a complete story, like complete series. So so I'm yeah. stoked to see how that'll go. So, like I said, it comes out in late April. So. Um, it should be, uh, that should be interesting to see how that goes. So we're excited about that. Cool. What are you nice. doing, Jay? Yeah, it's, uh, I got audio news too. It's kind of, we didn't plan this. It's kind of funny. <laughs> uh, I finished recording the writing scenes, uh, the next three story method book this week. I, uh, spent most of Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday of this week recording it. And, uh, I still have some editing to do, but the recording is the heavy lifting. Once that's done, the editing is a whole lot easier. So, uh, I was pretty excited about that. Got that done. And uh, also, uh, Glenn James and I wrote a post-apoc series called Dustfall a couple years ago, and it's a five-book series, and we sold it to Podium, and Podium published the audiobook, and uh, they, only, they only published the first four because it was kind of a, sl- it, it was a sluggish start, like it didn't sell very well. And just over the years, it's just sort of slowly burned, and, and uh, it's, it's garnering a lot of great reviews. Uh, Podium took notice. They're... Um, and so what they ended up doing was uh, signing on for that fifth and final book, and that's going to come out this week um, as, as we're talking, as, we're, as you're listening to this. It'll come out this week. So that'll be, that's pretty exciting. I think they'll, um, because it's the fifth and final book in the series, I think they will probably box it up. Um, because, it's, because it's a trad pub audio deal, like Glenn and I don't see a ton of money from it. Um, but it's, it's certainly getting some notice. It's, it's catching some ears. Um, and so I'm kind of thinking about some other ways I might be able to, to kind of leverage that IP in, in different ways. Cool. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take care of some business and then we'll get to our guest this week. Uh, get a reminder, everyone that, uh, you were down to the final two episodes of March, our March Madness Kobo e-reader giveaway. So all you got to do is leave a comment on any of the, blog posts at our website for any of the episodes in March and tell us why you love Kobo so much. And uh, you will be in the running for a Kobo Clara HD e-reader. So make sure you do that. Uh, We love Kobo. They're a great sponsor. Uh, If you're publishing wide, there's no reason not to go to Kobo. Uh, You don't have to have any exclusive deals. You can set your price in multiple countries, lots of promotions. So make sure you head on over to KoboWritingLife.com to check that out. And also a wonderful shout out to our patrons over there at patreon.com slash writers Inc podcast. If you would like to be able to submit questions to our monthly Q and a episode, go to that site and you can become a patron of the show. And that brings us to our guest this week. Who do we got JD? This one is going to be very cool. And I, I selfishly booked it. Um, Gillian Flynn. Um, so from a writer standpoint, she's got a very cool trajectory. She was, uh, uh, she was working at entertainment weekly. I think she was doing either film reviews or book reviews. I'm pretty sure it was film reviews. Um, you know, and she wrote her first book and it did okay. And then she wrote her second book and it did a little bit better. And then she wrote gone girl <laughs> and like things just exploded. I, I think that book, if I remember right, it, it was at number one for at least a month or two. I mean, it was an insane amount of time. 
Um, so just imagine, you know, she, I, I'm not sure what her, her book deal was like, but I'm guessing that was probably a two or three book deal, you know, with, with her publisher. So like that was kind of a make or break moment for a lot of reasons. And the first two books that she wrote, you know, didn't hit the times list initially uh, that I know of. Um, so, you know, like from a writer standpoint, like she was probably walking on eggshells there wondering what this third book was going to do. And, you know, I think a lot of people have asked them, you know, we, we all have imposter syndrome. Like, you know, did Gillian Flynn realize that she was writing Gone Girl when she was writing Gone Girl? Like, did she know that it was going to hit at that level? Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about this. And, you know, we talked about the screenplay that I'm working on that's insanely long right now. So, like, I wanted to hear her process for writing the screenplay for that, working with somebody like David Fincher. Um, so, yeah, I can't wait for this one. Here she is, Gillian Flynn. So first question I have for you comes uh, via JD. He told me his screenplay is currently four and a half hours long. That's that's okay, right? <laughs> well, I will tell you this. It is. I would say it's entirely okay for a first draft. Um, I can tell you when I wrote my screenplay for Gone Girl, which was the first screenplay I had ever written professionally, um, I, I wanted it to be, very, you know, very professionally, you always hear the studios want to come in right at two hours. They start getting nervous, especially if you're a newcomer, if it gets over two hours, which equal basically, you know, if a, if a page is a minute of, of the movie, then 120 pages. So I had it come in right exactly about at 120 pages. And then uh, David Fincher uh, had read it and got on board and we started developing it and one of the very first things he said to me was was like let's put back in everything from the book that we really liked and we'll put we'll push it all back in and then we'll see where we're at before we worry and i put everything back in he knew the book cold he's got this insane memory and put it all back in and then it really was it was like a it was a mini series length at that point <laughs> but then we kind of had it all and we could winnow it you know back down the you know um uh, which which was a kind of great exercise, and I I often do that now with my screenplays. Do that like just how much would I love to say? I'm not going to try to come in at exactly a certain uh, page number. I'm going to just see what I want to say, and then I can figure out where I need to start cutting. Mm. Now, when you wrote Gone Girl, you didn't uh, you you weren't planning to write the screenplay at that time, were you? Uh. I mean, certainly not when I wrote the book. I mean, right. I wasn't even uh, wasn't even intending it to be a movie. You know, I would say probably that was my third book, and of the three that I'd written, that was probably the least easy to adapt. You know, because it is it's playing with um, unreliable narrators like, that you can't entirely know that they're unreliable. You don't even want to hint at. It's very internalized monologue. A lot of you don't want to do, but you know. And, you know, it was, we got a lot of, you know, how can this possibly be done? You know, whereas Sharp Objects, which we ended up doing for HBO as a series, is very, you know, first, from first person point of view, never leaves that person's point of view, is told all the way, very, the way through. And there were much more ways because it was almost a detective story that there were ways to externalize. Whereas Gone Girl, even when Gone Girl, the book hit, um, you know, hit number one and, and stayed there. We kept getting no's from studios saying, I just don't think that this is, this is a doable thing. But so when I did finally sell it though, I had always wanted to, I had always dabbled in screenwriting and always wanted to. My dad was a film professor. So I really grew up 
discussing and dissecting and loving movies. And so that was part of the contract was that I would get the first draft, uh, first right to write the first draft of it. And normally what studios do is they give the author that and then they take it from you and toss it in the pile and hire a professional screenwriter. And, and um, so I felt really lucky that I, you know, did uh, Fincher came aboard and was um, just, you know, let let the writer write. Let's see where, you know, and gave, and because I know it would have been certainly more, certainly easier for him just to hire one of the many people that he, he had worked with on other projects just to have that sense of, um, this is in the hands of a professional as opposed to this is in the hands of a first-time screenwriter. But he didn't do that. So thank thank goodness. Yeah. So take me back to that moment. Uh, were you were you filled with excitement? Were you overwhelmed? Were you optimistic? Uh, did you think you could do it? Like, I mean, about all of those all at once. I mean, I, I really thought I, I really thought I could do it. I wouldn't have... I, I can, I can honestly say it wasn't out of pure vanity that I thought, oh, I, I should have first cry because every word is precious in my book and only I can shepherd it to screen. It wasn't remotely like that. It was that I I do tend to write, even when I'm writing my novels, I write them very filmically. That's That does not mean in any way to imply that I'm writing them in order to sell them as a film. Very much the opposite, usually, but I do tend to see and think about writing in terms of scenes. You know, I don't sit down and say, I'm going to write four pages of this piece of plot today. I think I, I need to write this scene from beginning to end, and I start seeing it and visualizing it. So I, I felt like I, and I, you know, I really was, I was such a film geek from childhood on I was you know back in the it was, this was uh, in the youth in the, my days uh, the days before internet and I would mail out for screen you know written screenplays that people would z you know somewhere in Hollywood would Xerox back to me <laughs> so I could really study screenplays so I thought I could do it but that said I had never done it before and to jump in with David Fincher who was someone that whose work I just had loved and studied and worshipped forever felt definitely like jumping right in the the deep end right there um so you know i was, I was anxious freaked out i also had a um i think our, my son was like barely over a year at that time period i was also still on a book tour that seemed to never end because of the gone girl had started selling so well and so i remember writing the last the last page of at least my first draft i wrote on a train from Kalamazoo, Michigan, back home to Chicago after I had done a library appearance and, you know, writing the end and kind of looking around to celebrate and was like, I guess I'll buy myself a glass of warm, cheap white wine to celebrate <laughs> from the concession area. Cheers. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Uh, can you... Can you remember something or anything that, that Fincher told you in the process that you've sort of retained and you, you've used that and it's become sort of part of your, your, your system for writing screenplays? Well, I mean, he, he was, we worked so closely developing it and, you know, I would send him drafts and he would um, send me kind of highlighted the mysterious highlighted passages or, or, or words or something that, and then we'd get on the phone, I would discover, I'd always try to decipher sort of like, what's going to be the issue behind 
you know, raspberry jam here. What's this going to be? Um, and, you know, and then we get on the phone and we talk forever and um, really kind of shape out, you know, what the, what the, we wanted the, if we want, you know, for instance, if we wanted the acts to line up in the same way the book did, where well, the book is divided very specifically into three parts. At the third one, at the end of the third, um, well, excuse me, at the, end, at the end of the first act of the book, you find out what's really going on. I'll put it that way. Uh, at the end of the second act, you have the this middle second act where the pieces are falling into place and maybe coming back together. And then you have the third, which is, it's, um, you know, very heightened, almost satiric about marriage and, 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 uh, what happens. And so, you know, is even, do we keep these thirds? Do we break this up? Do we, you know, so it was, it was, it was a lot of conversations, but he's not one to speak in adages or, you know, to sort of like, whatever you do, you know, save the cat for a rule of screenwriting or anything like that. Um, but I think, you know, Partly, I, I think partly why we got along so well together is that we both are real workhorses. We were both really want to keep going at it till we've figured out every everything we can think of, every different angle. I'm certainly not afraid to rewrite and rewrite. That's how I do my books to begin with, and you know, just to to figure out what moments what moments hit. So I think it really is just that respect for filmgoers you know that respect of like this is close to working but like neither of us would ever put up you know here's a placeholder scene because we couldn't figure out something better to do it's like no let's figure it out you mentioned your your dad earlier uh what horror movies did he take you to see <laughs> oh he i mean i was i love scary movies so I think we started out on, I think I watched Psycho at a very young age. I remember, you know, it was like we had those one of those big old 1970s top-loading VCRs and, and like been putting in the, the tape. And like today we're watching a very important movie, Gilly. It's called Psycho. And, and that was sort of my introduction to the the good scary movies now he he wasn't a snob at all so he you know it didn't have to be a classic you know and necessarily it didn't have to be you know um and you know some sort of heightened like you know this is considered you know hitchcock of the classics you know we loved john we went to john carpenter movies we're both huge john carpenter um fanatics i finally got to show my son the thing um the john carpenter version over over covid i i was either it was either me deciding he was ready for it or just finally breaking into and just like, let's, I just want to watch something that's going to make me really happy. <laughs> so um, it's been fun to, to transfer that, uh, all those scary movies down to him. And, you know, I remember seeing Alien when I was, I mean, I think I was six years old. It took me to Alien and uh, my dad saying, now this is really important, Gillian. We're seeing this because do you know what an, a female hero is called? a heroine and this movie has a hair and i'm like don't try to pretend this is any sort of early feminism dad we know what this is you want to see you want to see a scary movie and you don't want to pay for a babysitter today but the the great thing about it was you know he really did always engage you know we would talk about movies afterwards and why what parts worked and what parts didn't work and he would never let me off with you know any sort of kid answer of you know well i just liked it or it was fun or you know it was neat or you know well, well why and we would really drilled down and I think that's certainly why you know in my my first uh career I was a um 
I wrote for Entertainment Weekly where I was a, wrote about movies and, and was also a, a critic. And I think it comes from a lot of those early of uh, moments of, you know, why does this thing work or not work? And, uh, you know, trying to decipher it. That's so fascinating. Uh, I think we're about the same age. I have teenagers and I, I'm constantly trying to strike that balance between showing them movies from my childhood, horror movies versus like more contemporary ones. Where do you fall with your son? Do, do you watch one or the other or both? You know, we'll, we will watch both. Um, it's interesting, though. I have noticed that the, the ones from the 70s and early 80s, um, from when I was a kid, are actually the ones that scare him more. Um, and I think it's because, well, I know this is because, because we, we of course, uh, have continued the parent-child post-movie conversation. Uh, what scares him more is those look real when they have the violence when they have you know the thing you know or the, you know the alien busting on the stomach the thing you know twirling around and revealing itself those aren't cgi you know those were those were real animatronics or real puppeteering or you know molding and they were they were creatures that were made out of things you know actual living things as opposed to even when it's good CGI, you're still going, you know, there's just, you're, you're missing something there. They, you're missing that, the tactile um, nature, I think, of that. And so he likes them both and we'll, we'll switch back and forth. He's seen, you know, we've watched Deep Blue Sea a couple times also over COVID. I will not ever apologize for a good Rennie Harlan movie with my son. We had, we went on a whole like, cliffhanger, um, Deep Blue Sea. But I only recently actually showed him Jaws. Uh, you know, so he'd seen this Deep Blue Sea with, you know, much more hyper insanity, CGI, shark attacking. But it was, I, and I knew it. I knew it. I, I said, like, we're going to wait on Jaws for just a little bit because I don't think, like, I think it's going to freak you out a little bit more. And it absolutely did. But now he also knows what I mean when I say we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I used to always just go, like, it's, it's just a, it's a reference that you know, he, they said it. And also he just looked at me with his eyes like, oh, I get it now. Those are great connections with your kids when you can make them like that. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, your story, your brand of storytelling, is very cinematic, and it's uh, it's obvious to me that you know your your love of movies has has infused itself into your your craft. Um, can you talk a little bit about your approach to to writing novels, uh, whether that's you know the logistics of it or or sort of higher altitude perspectives you have on it? Sure, absolutely. Um, I I have an incredibly scatter shot approach when I first start out um, a book. It's, it, it's very often I've found that there's something intriguing from the previous, and I've only written three books, so I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm doing a master class, but it seems like it's very often linked. Something that the previous one dipped into has gotten my brain kind of going and it swirls a little bit into the next round. Like for instance, Sharp, um, Sharp Objects was my first book, and I wanted to talk about female violence and aggression and how that looked generationally, the the way we've always heard about male violence and how that's handed down generationally. And so I wanted to get into that. Well, now, as 
I was finishing writing that book, I it started touching a little bit on the idea of the media picking up on the story and and becoming fascinated and they're they're coming into town and I wrote and so that became the genesis of my second book Dark Places which was about a little girl who becomes famous only because she was the sole survivor when her entire family was axe murdered and so she is one of those people that you see if you're like if you're a true crime junkie like myself um, that you see where you, I mean, I just always wonder what happened to those people where they have, they're forced into this kind of horrific 15 minutes of fame and, and what a strange, um, bartering must, of the soul that must feel like, you know, you get to talk about this person you love, but at the same time you're talking and reviewing over and over again, the worst moment of your life. So that became the segue. So I, I often do start around that way where there's some sort of kernel from the previous writing that then goes into the next and i but i don't outline um i tried outline for my very first book and i went so completely far off the outline so quickly that i've never tried ever since i mean to the first to the point that um the the person who is the killer in sharp objects was not even in the first draft of the book it's an entirely different killer, and people would say, you know, like I thought this, I thought so and so was the killer, and I was, I say, like, me too. <laughs> I thought, I thought they were the killer. It turns out they weren't. After I finished my first draft, and I had to go back and completely rewrite the whole thing. But um, so that's how kind of loose I play it, because to me, you know, I, I kind of know what is intriguing me about the about writing the book, like. You know, when I started Gone Girl, I think I had just gotten married and was thinking a lot about, you know, gender roles in marriage and how marriage changes you or doesn't change you. And um, and so I knew it was about that. And I knew kind of the basis of, of you know, the, that she would go missing and the husband would come under fire. But aside from that, that's all I knew. And I just kind of that's how I find my way as I really, it's not the most efficient way of doing it, but I just write and write and write and then rewrite, you know, and I think, I think all my years, you know, I was a journalist for 10 years and, you know, you would very often lose you know, at the last minute your 12,000 word beautiful think piece that's going to change the world is now 200 words long and you just have to deal with it and cut it down. And so I think that, one of the great things about having done that for so many years is it doesn't make you overly precious. It doesn't make you fear rewriting. It just teaches you that writing is it's a job like anything else. And sometimes you got to do it over. <laughs> do you have a, a particular uh, process or is it a certain time of day, a certain place in the house, a certain time of year, anything like that? So I, I mean, I, I really do kind of treat it as a nine to five job. Now I'm not writing, you know, all those times I have to, you know, take an hour every once in a while and like putter around doing what I don't know. I think just moving piles of papers to other piles that, um, and, but I, because I do think it's very dangerous to treat writing as something where the gods are going to come down from on high and, you know, bless you with this sudden ability. And those pages are going to suddenly start flowing out of you. It just does not work that way. I mean, sometimes you have great days of writing and everything's going 
well and you think like, well, like I, I nailed this. This is amazing. And then sometimes you just have days where you're like, does my brain even work at all anymore? How does, how does one even write? Um, so I, for me, the more I can place it within, you know, kind of nine to five boundaries. Um, and again, I'll switch now that I'm doing both screenwriting and novel, you know, sometimes I'll do a not the novel part in the morning and if I'm, you know, switch over to screenwriting or vice versa, which is nice to break it up. But if, if I had my druthers and I did not have small children, what I used to always do was I would write, start around 10 o'clock at night and write till three or three in the morning, three or four in the morning, and then crush in. Uh, that is no longer an option, but I do, I will still catch myself sometimes when the kids are in bed, I'll get another two hours of work done just if, if my brain is, because I mean... I, my, my brain does not fully, I'm, I'm a night owl. So I always, I still feel like that's when my, the synapses are clicking the best. How do you know when you've done enough revisions? Oh, la, 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 la. I wish, I wish I had any sort of uh, compact answer for that. I, I just, it's for me, it's, it's when I've read through it and it's the book that, I want to read that I would want to read and that I would pick up that I would like um and you know I I truly revise until and and tweak until the very last minute they the publisher will send it to you the book to you again when it's laid out where it looks exactly like a book and I often find them that will just seeing it looking differently than on an eight by um 10 inch or 11, however big typing paper is, um, <laughs> will trigger, like, I'll notice certain things, like, and, you know, it's smaller stuff. It's like word repetition, which is a real, I, that drives me insane. Um, and little things like that. Um, but then I'll go back again. And you, usually each time you get it, you're supposed to touch less and less. And each time I'm like, I'll have little arrows to the side, like, let's fix this. Can we change this word? I hate this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't normally send it out to for anyone to read it um i have a very small group of people that i let read before um it's heading toward you know tending toward the latest stage of the game that would read before i would send on for instance to my editor and that's my husband and I, like two other friends but even to them i don't send it um until I've really, really played with it for a while. You you mentioned earlier that uh, you didn't think Gone Girl was the perfect fit for the screen compared to your uh, your other stories that you had. Looking back now and having some distance, did you did you know there was something about that book when you were writing it, or did it come completely out of the blue? It was so out of the blue. It was is so beyond out of the blue. Like I we really. Well, first of all, I remember turning it in and my editor, who I am, I adore, um, absolutely adore. So she was not suggesting any changes, but she did say to me, she said, I just wanted to check in on a few points with you. So you've written a whodunit where you find out whodunit in the middle of the book. It's got two narrators, neither of whom are particularly likable, and an ending that's not, that is a little loose-ended and it's not going to kind of wrap things up in a pretty bow 
is that what you meant to do? <laughs> and I said, yes, that is exactly every part. I would disagree that they're not likable, but I could understand how others would say so. Um, but yeah, I said, that's exactly, exactly what I was trying to do. But we really approached it sort of like, I think some people are going to like this and some people really might not. And, you know, hopefully... You know, my second book did a little bit better than my first, and then my third book will do a little bit better than my second, and that's going to be great. Uh, and and so we were all stunned. I mean, I think it debuted at number two and then was at number one for months. Um, and, and we were all just taken completely by surprise. I mean, we, were, we just thought it was, I mean, it was this wonderful thing, but we truly, you know, had not prepared for it um you know i i still remember it was july 4th when the new york times releases their um their rankings and my sweet wonderful editor sneaked into the the city got into the office so that she could get access on her special computer to see what the rankings were since everything was closed since it was july 4th and uh and that was it was just a it was a wild moment i was not someone who ever remotely pictured myself as ever getting on the New York Times list. And I'm not saying that as pretend humble. I'm, I'm, I really mean, like, I just didn't think I wrote the kind of books that would, would land me there. And that, that was fine that I would always, you know, write a book and, um, and be able to keep afloat that way. But it was certainly not, not as it planned, which was a, very lovely surprise. I'll bet. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, uh, one, one question I like to ask guests, and it's completely open-ended. You can answer however you want. Uh, we've been through a lot of changes, not only in the world, but in the publishing industry over the last few years. What do you see on the horizon? What, something that excites you, something you might be worried about uh, in regards to the publishing industry? You know, I, I do... I do think we're we're figuring out how to how to look for and treasure and you know aggressively seek new voices you know vo that we're not just constantly looking for you know the next great white male novelist you know that is going to be you know continuing the incredibly long tradition that that we're really you know um realizing that like oh what do you know you know life has incredibly many kinds of people i think i think it's been cool um you know in the latest trend of of having female characters who for aren't quote likable you know and I, because i remember back when we were shopping shopping around sharp objects and we got turned down consistently because publishers would say you know, readers don't want to read a woman who isn't likable and that they can't aspire to be. Um, and I, you know, we proved that very wrong very quickly. Um, and I hope that we, you know, are able to keep expanding in that way. And I do have to say, you know, I with um, I am at a place called Zando Publishing, which is a smaller publisher, and I have an imprint there now. And that's with Molly Stern, who was my wonderful editor on Gone Girl and the publisher there. And it's my whole imprint is to seek out books um, that are offbeat, that are quirky, that don't, um, you know, 
that don't come in with this massive um, marketing sort of platform already built in. I think that's the one thing that frustrates me the most right now about publishing is is that this catch twenty two of well we want we want to publish writers who have a massive social media presence or a TV show or you know a comedy show or something like that and uh, but then forgetting all the wonderful voices that are out there you know who who don't have that and how are they going to have that unless you give them a chance to write the book and then you know it's this sort of catch 22 thing that drives me a little crazy and i don't think is significant of anything i mean you know so i mean people make fun of me and i will happily take it which because i'm hardly ever on social media i kind of dip in and dip out but it's just not I, I'm not, I'm a novelist. I can't write in a pithy, clever manner. <laughs> but, but but I guess my point is being really great on Twitter or Insta in no way means that you're going to write a great book. And also, by the way, in no way means that people are going to buy that book. So to me, it's a false um, assumption. And so um, we really are, um, I'm looking for all types of books, all different genres, all different writers, and particularly those ones, like I said, that aren't the immediate marketable, you know, this is, you know, a, a mystery about a, a troubled woman, or, you know, <laughs> the, 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 more, the ones that you can't just boil down in a sentence is, uh, that I really like, and I'm, I'm feeling more and more hopeful about. I just want to say up front how appreciative I uh, was of Gillian, because she was feeling quite under the weather during the interview. And it would have been really easy for her to cancel, um, but she didn't. She, she stuck it out and she, she went through the interview and I just really appreciated that. So I wanted to mention it. But what I really wanted to ask uh, first was, JD, do you feel better or worse about your screenplay now? You know, I, I honestly feel better, and like, and, and I've had this talk with with my my agents. Um, you know, like J Gillian said that she she cut the movie down to two hours. Like she went through and she she did all that, and she turned it in. And then David Fincher said, "Well, let's put everything back in." Um, and like I've had that conversation on the book front and also the film front um, with with my agents because you know I, I personally feel that I you know my certain people should get to weigh in on what gets cut when it comes to a book or when it comes to a movie. Um, you know, my agent has told me many times I would take this out of the book, I would take that out of the book, let's take 20,000 more words out, let's do this, let's do that. And I'm totally fine with that, but that's her opinion. And like, the only one to me that, you know, it's not that her opinion doesn't matter, but the, the editor, the person who actually buys that book, the publisher is putting it out, the ones who are putting the dollars behind it, like that's the person who should be telling me what to take out. Um, so it was cool to hear her say that. Um, and also from a process standpoint, because that's, you know, very similar to where I'm at with this. You know, like I, the reason my screenplay is at four and a half hours long is because I followed the book and literally put every scene that's in the book into the, the script, you know, the screenwriting software. And I'm doing the exact same thing that she did with, with David Fincher. Now I'm going through it and we're, you know, work, working with the various people, you know, saying, well, this part is good, but it doesn't need, necessarily need to be there. You know, if we pull that, it's, you know, it's like pulling a string on a sweater. You take that one scene out, that means you can take out these three or four more. You know, that chops 12 minutes. You know, you take another five minutes out here, another 10 minutes out there. And, you know, just like with a, a piece of steak, you know, you, you're just you're trimming away the fat and trying to get it as, as lean as possible. So from a process standpoint, I feel like I'm, I'm on track. And it was really cool to, to hear, you know, how that worked for her. Um, the fact that she got first draft in her contract, that kind of surprised me because, you know, I've got I, I don't even I think seven 
various projects right now in Hollywood hell um, at different stages. And, and I don't have that. And, and I don't know that I would want it. You know, like I think you really need to want to write a screenplay, you know, to, to work in that world. I, I love writing novels. I absolutely do. But putting the screenplay together has been a slog of work that I just I really don't want to experience again. So it just it comes down to the person. Yeah, that was I, I loved how you asked her about that, about kind of how she felt about about that situation, because I, I can't, you know, imagine having my, you know, my, only my third book that's going to be turned into a movie. It's a David Fincher film <laughs> who's like one of my favorite directors. And, you know, you get to write the screenplay. And I don't know. I think that that was that that was there i mean yeah i mean i could see how she felt all those ways like excited overwhelmed like feel the pressure and all that but clearly she's a pro and 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 not i mean obviously knocked out of the park i mean because that movie was was incredible and it had and had a great screenplay so but uh but yeah that was a really interesting perspective to hear and and like you said that she even got that in the first place because that's so rare and then um yeah that's that just that whole thing just kind of was crazy to me just thinking about being that scenario and getting to write this my first you know book i get adapted i get to write the screenplay and it's for a director like david Fin. she mentioned like all my favorite directors in this interview too david fincher john carpenter and ridley scott so i was really like that was awesome <laughs> well that's something else you know a lot of people don't think about you know like as an author your books you know gets optioned you know or studio signs on or, or whatever you know you kind of feel that like that's a done deal when it comes to being a film like you can you know kind of walk away from it and, and and move on and it's just you know going to happen um, but that's not how it works and you know like she wrote that screenplay like it could have just as easily been you know some no-name person that came in instead of david fincher and i've been there too you know like you know yeah. this person just signed on to write your screenplay and you know you hear their take on it and it's totally different than what you had in mind and you know six months later that person is gone and somebody else comes aboard and their take is totally different from what the first two were um you know like I, she must have just had like this huge sigh of relief when she heard that it's david fincher you know like because there's there's certain you know people like that you know in, in the film business like you hear that name and like you know it's good like i will go and see a david fincher movie right now i, I don't care what it's based on i don't know what it's about if his name's attached to it i know it's going to be a solid movie yeah. um and, and like there's a handful of people where you can make that claim and he just happens to be one of them so like she must have been so you know relieved when she heard he was the the guy i was fascinated by the not every guest um shares this and i don't necessarily try to to pull it out of them for from every guest but in in gillian's case it was really fascinating to hear her talk about sharing her love of horror films with her dad and and just being like a little kid and 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 being into that and then sort of passing that along to her son and then you know working um you know reviewing films like you could just see you could see the lineage like you could see the the lifelong passion that she had for sort of that that darker edge storytelling especially more cinematic and it's it, it just kind of it was a really nice perspective that i don't um we don't always get from you know people of her stature yeah and you know that if you step back and you just look at it from a process standpoint you know like to, to write a good book you need to read a lot of books but to write an even better book i think you need to watch a lot of movies um, because movies take a good book and they just you know like we just talked about they whittle it down to the absolute best parts of that book and then they they put it together and if it works as a film you know it's it's the best pieces of that particular book um you know so she's got that whole history behind her so when she sits down to write a novel you know like that framework that structure those that cadence the pacing all those different things that you see in a 
movie that's playing out in her head um you know and she's seeing it i'm guessing she's visualizing the story in her mind almost like a movie and just sort of documenting it um and that's one of the reasons why i think it works so well for her um the other thing that she brought up you know which i you know i'm having this argument right now on uh dracul is um you know practical effects versus cgi Mm, you know like if you go back and watch any of these like you can watch a scary movie from the 50s you know where they didn't have special effects it's in you know it's in black and white all they could rely on were you know maybe the music and facial expressions from the actors and that movie will scare the piss out of you um and then you can you know turn on something from today that's you know 50 percent cgi and you know they might have this giant monster in there that's supposed to be scary but like your brain just somehow knows that it's not real um so yeah like i, I really hope that a lot of these you know horror in particular you know I, I really hope that it goes back to more practical effects and away from cgi just because of that you know and, and she brought up the perfect example i mean if, if you watch um you know what was the first shark movie she said um deep blue sea you know watch that it's a great movie you know I, I love samuel jackson in that movie but you know you compare that to jaws and they're like there is no comparison like jaws will wake you up at three o'clock in the morning and, and with a bad dream where deep blue sea will just get a couple jump starts out of you so yeah that's huge well, yeah, and if you um, like, if you know uh, m- much about how Jaws was made, a lot of the decisions they made in that movie were because of like malfunctions with the shark and because of things like that, which in- they ended up having to hide it more, which ended up making that movie, you know, other than the the cast with the three main actors is like incredible, but but a lot of the decisions they had to make were because of the practical effects and what they had on hand and. Um, yeah, it just it just makes such a huge difference. And it was really uh, yeah, I, I really loved her bringing that up. And as Jay said, that just like further shows her her love of film. You know, we're going to need a bigger um, boat. We're going <laughs> to need a bigger that. boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something else that she brought up is um, she didn't think that she wrote the kind of books that would end up on the New York Times list. And, you know, mm-hmm. that thought was probably put into her head by her agent and possibly by her by her editors, you know, that, and she had brought up that a couple editors or publishers that had told her that her characters just aren't likable. And, you know, back then when these books were coming out like that, that was a thing like, you know, the publishers wanted a character that readers could relate to that would want to be like, would want to emulate. And she was writing the exact opposite of that. She was writing characters that, you know, you ran into them in a room, you know, you, you'd want to leave that room. Um, but at the same time, that didn't mean that they weren't interesting. And, and she changed a lot in publishing because of that. You know, like if Gone Girl hadn't hit the way that it did, you know, that, uh, you know, the unreliable narrator, you know, that she, you know, she had two of them in, in one book, like, you know, an unreliable narrator wasn't really even a thing before that book hit. And then all of a sudden, every book that came out after it had an unreliable narrator in it. So like she literally changed a lot of the, the things happening in, in publishing, um, which is one of the reasons why that, that book you know stayed on the list as long as it did. Excellent. Yeah, she was a fantastic interview. Like I said, uh, she wasn't she wasn't a hundred percent, and yet uh, she was very gracious and just such an interesting person and uh, very humble. You know, she you got you got the sense she's just a writer and uh, and a person, and I she's just very relatable. Yeah, that, that's honestly it's one of the coolest things that I get out of this show. You know, some of the names that we've got on are, are people like her. You know, that they're they're kind of on a, a, a different level from a lot of the other authors. You know, she's she's just one of those iconic names at this point. Um, but you know, her story, her her process, everything else is no different than the you know the guy who's writing indie books. You know, that's three or four books in. You yeah. know, and I think that I, I really find a lot of inspiration in that. Yeah, she said she you know another thing she said she treats it like a nine to five. You know, so yeah, it was awesome. Nice. Cool. Well, what is up next week, JD? 
uh, Q&A, right? Yes, we have our Q&A coming up next week, and uh, I think we have Alyssa Sussman after that. Uh, but yeah. yeah, yeah, Q&A is definitely next week. So make sure if you're a, pa- uh, a patron of the show, get your questions in because uh, we'll, we will answer them on the show. All right, well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.